0: Hi, I'm Ravi Agrawal, Foreign Policy's Editor-in-Chief. This is FP Live. Welcome to the show. We cover a fair bit of US-China relations at Foreign Policy, and for good reason. It's the world's most important relationship right now, and it is actually quite fraught. That's worrying. There were two important recent speeches by senior Biden administration officials that are worth considering today. One is by Janet Yellen, the Treasury Secretary, who tried to point out that the United States wasn't aiming to decouple from China as much as it was de-risking. You might have heard that word before, and it's an argument you might have heard on this program from U.S. Trade Representative Catherine Tai. Then, earlier this month, National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan gave a speech at Brookings, which he cheekily titled The New Washington Consensus. He was making the case for the convergence of economic policy and national security and defending the Biden administration's vast investments in industrial policy. Another topic you've heard a lot of on FP Live. But it's all made us wonder here at FP, is America's China policy shifting Now, we often interview policymakers and experts on FP Live. This week, I want to bring you something different on the podcast. It's a version of FP Live we call the Reporter's Notebook. In it, our executive editor, Amelia Lester, speaks with our reporters about what they're learning from their sources, and they get at the backstories on the pieces you've often read on our website. As always, FP subscribers send us loads of questions for these discussions. If you'd like to do that too, subscribe now use the code FPLIVE for a discount. You can also watch these interviews live in video if you go to foreignpolicy.com slash live. For now, here is Amelia Lester in conversation with our reporters Christina Liu, Jack Detch, and Robbie Graber.
1: Christina, Jack, Robbie, thank you for joining me today and let's dive right in. Christina, you wrote about Sullivan's speech last week. We've all read your piece now. Just remind us what he said that represented a divergence from previous policy guidance and also moving it forward. How are his remarks being viewed and what might they change? Our subscriber Bao Guo asked about this as well.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So Sullivan really outlined kind of a broader, more fundamental shift in how the U.S. now views global trade. He said effectively that The post-World War II international economic order is not really working for the U.S. anymore, and it's beyond kind of past time to question the assumptions that underpin the policies of those decades and really forge a new consensus. And we've been seeing moves in that direction with the Inflation Reduction Act, with um, efforts to carve out new supply chains for critical minerals with partner countries, with the CHIPS Act. And then with China specifically, we saw in this speech the administration's kind of clearest, most comprehensive effort at defining its China strategy and how it wishes to approach China and packaging it in a way that kind of appeals to wary um, countries that, you know, have been wary of how this dynamic has been unfolding. And we've seen that, especially with the European Union. You know, Sullivan said, we really want to de-risk from China. We don't want to decouple. Um, And we've seen U.S. officials like Catherine Tai, for example, kind of lean away from this decoupling language in the past. But here, Sullivan was, you know, explicitly matching European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen's de-risking language, and then he also referenced her in by name, and you know, it was a clear example of how he's clearly trying to reassure partners who have been worried about this hawkishness um, and this kind of language that we've seen come out of Washington.
1: And what about Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen's speech at the World Bank and IMS spring meetings? Adam Tooze wrote about this for us, and you can find the link on this page. In short, Yellen called for a constructive and fair economic relationship with China. What impact are we seeing from her speech? And I guess I do want to apply some skepticism here. Does this really mark a change in tone or is it a different kind of word choice?
2: Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so Yellen's message was really all about national security. She was very clear that that will be the priority for Washington in the relationship between the U.S., the U.S. and China. And she said that the U.S. will really do what it takes to protect that, even if it comes at an economic cost. Um, but at the same time, as you mentioned, you know, she did call for constructive engagement. She said she wanted healthy economic ties. So she did strike kind of a positive tone tone during a period, um, you know, where, where tensions have been high. Um, She really emphasized that the U.S. is not trying to keep China down, even saying that decoupling would be disastrous for the world. And she said that the world is really big enough for both countries and there, there should be room for cooperation when possible. I want to know that this leaves a lot of questions unanswered, sources that I've spoken with say with her focus on national security that raises a lot of questions about what this will mean in practice going forward and what this will look like in terms of actual policy. It's it's not really clear what the parameters are here and you know it's not really clear also where you draw the line in terms of what counts as a national security threat um, and also what kind of trade-offs this will involve. So all of that is still very much so up in the air.
1: Robbie, it would be helpful, I think, to take us back a bit to explain why the status quo in Washington for so long has been a hawkish position and why Yellen and Sullivan had to to some extent walk that back. You and Christina wrote about this hawkishness recently. Has this consensus been led by domestic political factors, do you think, or by China's increasing autocracy?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think it's a little of column A, a little of column B. Um I mean, it is crazy looking back. You know, six or seven years ago, it's it's you look at public statements from from different administrations pre-Trump, and it was like a different a different world. I think a lot of it was driven by um, Xi Jinping's really sharp authoritarian bent, particularly within the past decade. Uh, but on the U.S. side, I think there were a lot of Europeans um, and others uh, in Washington, elsewhere in the world, who thought that after Trump left office, Biden was going to toned down the rhetoric, sort of, you know, take the sharp edges off, off this hawkishness. And we didn't see that happen. You know, there might be less crazy tweets that are unpredictable from a president now, but uh, but the this hawkish bent in Washington is here and it's here to stay. There was this snowball effect. I think there were a lot of companies talking about corporate espionage. There were, you know, the U.S. Justice Department, FBI intelligence community has talked about China drastically scaling up its espionage operations, but I also think a part of it is a bit about you know Washington psychology during the Trump era when partisan politics seemed so noxious and really undermined U.S. credibility on the world stage. There was really only one thing that Democrats and Republicans could work on together and could agree on, and that was China. And sort of by nature of there not being anything else in the room, they started working together a lot on China, and this big sort of foreign policy blob consensus formed around we need to get hawkish on China. And that has obviously led to the atmosphere that we're seeing today.
1: Jack, Yellen also made a point of saying that the United States was secure enough in its leadership of the global economy to welcome competition from China. And then she added, as long as Beijing plays by the rules and what she means by this, are the rules set by the United States. What are your sources telling you about the double messaging here?
4: Yeah, Yellen and U.S. officials are kind of like Eminem in his first rap battle in 8 Mile, right? They're nervous, but on the surface, they look calm and ready. You just hope nobody chokes in the ensuing rap battle. Nobody's panicking right now. Of course, 60% of the world's currency reserves are still in dollars. The Chinese efforts to get the renminbi going as sort of a global reserve currency haven't really caught steam. But what you see with with Yellen versus the NSC rhetoric is not as much mixed messaging as it is kind of creative differences on China policy that date back decades. Economic priorities really compete with security priorities. And you see on the economic side of the house, everybody kind of wants to play nice in the sandbox for the sake of the global economic order. But on the security side, they just want more sand on their side of the sandbox. And that's made especially clear by China actually pouring sand in the South China Sea. So even though this is kind of the world's biggest trading relationship, you can't just stay married for the sake of the kids, especially with the tensions in the region. And you see Japan and Australia in particular out on historic limbs, Japan reconsidering the role of their self-defense forces, their military, Australia now reconsidering uh, whether to take a more aggressive tack towards China, of course, joining the AUKUS alliance, investing in American submarines. So The U.S. is not just alone here when they're making these considerations.
1: Robbie, I will need you to answer this next question with an M&M lyric, keep that in mind. Um, U.S. Ambassador to China Nick Burns gave a speech earlier this week on U.S.-China relations as well. Tell us a bit about his remarks and what are the major concerns that are coming out of that speech?
3: Yeah, so for the past 20 seconds, I've been scrambling to come up with a good music analogy that can compete with Jack. Maybe some Fleetwood Mac lyrics. I can't think of anything. It's a renegade, Robbie. Uh,
4: okay. Jay Z and, and Eminem. He's never afraid to say what's on his mind at any given Perfect. time. Perfect.
3: Thank you, Jack. That was really helpful. Um, yeah. Okay. So, anyways, I can't compete with that. So I'm just going to say what Burns said. Sorry, guys. Um, yeah. I mean, I the the main message. There were two main messages that that Burns had. One of them, Christine already articulated we are not seeking decoupling here. This is not a full separation of two economies, even as Washington takes this hawkish bent. But I think the other one that um, it was sort of lost in the headlines, but I think it was doubly important was Burns's point about the contacts, the high level contacts that the US and China had now. During the Cold War, the U.S. and Soviet Union had this famous hotline where, you know, if there were tensions or one side thought the other was moving towards, you know, launching nukes, uh, they they could pick up the phone and call each other, the military chiefs. And China and the U.S. doesn't have one right now. That's really worrying a lot of American officials because it obviously heightens tensions. It sets the stage for any sort of accident or misinterpretation that, that could quickly spiral. Burns said, our view is we need better channels between the two governments. Deeper channels are ready to talk. It seems like, at least on paper, the administration is opening a door to try and defuse tensions. But at the same time, they don't have this hotline in place in case there's some sort of accident or escalation. We don't really know what the off-ramp is for You know, Xi and Biden or um, Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff Milley picking up the phone and calling to his counterpart in the PLA and saying, hey, we just want you to know, um, you know, we're ready to talk at this point. And I think that's a really worrying development and something that American officials are really trying to push through. But it's difficult when it's a very closed off and authoritarian society to know who outside of Xi might be a good person to pick up the phone call.
1: Uh, Christina, does all of this have the makings of a policy shift in your view? What can we expect to be rolled out from the administration moving forward? Could they be considering easing sanctions?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. I think the question that's off the top of everyone's minds right now. Um, I, I don't get the sense that this represents a major policy shift. I think, you know, it's it's been clear that many countries, including key US allies, are not entirely on board with Washington's kind of hawkish approach to China. And I see this more as a response to that. I think that you know they're with Sullivan's speech, especially, but also Yellen, they're clearly trying to package the Biden administration's China strategy in a way that's more palatable. In rhetoric, kind of sounds a lot like what the EU, for example, has been calling for.
1: And speaking of the EU, how much of all of this with Yellen and Sullivan's speeches, in particular, do you think is an effort at calming the nerves of the Europeans?
2: I think a lot of it is. I think that they they've been hearing these concerns for a while and. I think that, you know, especially with Sullivan, for example, explicitly referencing Ursula von der Leyen's language and saying de-risking, not decoupling, I think this is a very important signal to the EU that they're trying to align efforts a little more here.
1: Robbie, what where does Europe stand on all of this compared with the US?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think there's three ways to think about the EU broadly here. The first is that it's no monolith. I think you've seen um, widely disparate messages coming out of, say, French President Emmanuel Macron's recent visit to Beijing, where he was pilloried in the American press, some parts of Eastern Europe for talking about wanting to work with China, not wanting to sort of get dragged into a U.S.-China Cold War, um, and then von der Leyen's visit, um, who took a more hawkish bent and sort of hewed more to to U.S. views on that. The second is, is there is a growing awareness and fear of China's authoritarian bent in Europe. Um, I think Europe is just uh, not quite as far along or just not thinking in in the same way as as the United States is here and sort of this one dimensional, all hawkish, all the time approach. Um, And you're going to see those dynamics play out in a a lot of more complicated ways, because obviously, you know, there's uh, uh, over two dozen member states there as opposed to just one capital here in D.C. And I think there's also uh, they're feeling very unnerved about the U.S. fixation on Taiwan here whether that could push China and the U.S. into some sort of military confrontation, especially against the backdrop of the current war in Ukraine, which is obviously their number one strategic priority at this point. And some, though not all, voices coming out of Washington, particularly on the more MAGA wing of the Republican Party, saying, hey, Ukraine is great and all, but we really got to stop supporting Ukraine so we can start bulking up for a long game against China.
1: On this topic, we had a great question from subscriber Sanjay Agarwal, which I'd like to ask you, Robbie, how is Europe's reluctance to follow the US and getting tough on China influencing China's foreign policy?
3: I mean, I think China sees uh, sees Europe as sort of the pressure release valve in the West at this point. Um, they feel like the you know their their room to operate with the United States is really constrained. and so they're turning more towards u s allies in Europe that are obviously very important business partners and trying at least to put forward this public campaign of, hey, like, you know, look at Washington, it's getting a little too crazy, a little too rabid. Can we talk? Can we try to defuse tensions? It's making inroads somewhat, but at the same time, there's also this heavy-handed, awkward, um, and pretty uh, uh, blunt style of so-called wolf warrior diplomacy when Lithuania, uh, you know, the small Eastern European country, um, talked about opening a trade office in Taiwan. Um, China responded in a really clumsy, heavily handed way that really alienated Beijing from the rest of Eastern Europe, taking bullying tactics, cutting off uh, uh, state-owned enterprises from actually working in, in Lithuania. And so that might be a bellwether of how China just can't help itself um, as it's trying to keep inroads open with Europe, but at the same time, putting forward this clumsy, hawkish wolf warrior diplomacy that's only going to serve to alienate some of its possible allies, or if not allies, partners in the West
0: you are listening to foreign policy live remember you can watch these conversations live and on video on our website foreignpolicy.com live subscribers get to send us questions in advance which we often take on their behalf so sign up use the code fplive for a discount
1: Jack, shifting back to the US a little bit, there is of course a 2024 presidential race that's beginning right now. I'm wondering if this shift in tone from Yellen and Sullivan could be about Biden's reelection campaign in any way.
4: It's the classic saying, right, Amelia, that dates from Bill Clinton's 1992 campaign. It's the economy, stupid. And you just have to look at the numbers in the past 15 to 20 presidential elections in the United States If the economy's in a recession, the president loses. If the economy's not in the recession, the incumbent president usually cruises. And despite all of this decoupling rhetoric that we see in Washington, these primetime hearings of the China Select Committee, uh, which is a a bipartisan movement, not just Mike Gallagher, the Republican chairman, the Biden administration is still walking a fine line between getting the United States ready for sort of this Cold War-like tussle with a country that doesn't resemble the Soviet Union, And sort of dealing with the economic reality of China, that it's paying the bills. I mean, we're in the middle of this enormous debt ceiling fight in the United States. It could actually derail President Biden's trip that he wants to take to Australia and Japan in the next couple of weeks. And China is paying a lot of those bills. They own a trillion dollars in U.S. debt. So even though you have this very bellicose rhetoric coming out of some parts of Washington, you have to remember, there's this economic stability piece that the administration has to manage at the same time.
1: Robbie, how big a role, given that, do you think China or policies surrounding China is going to play in this 2024 presidential race?
3: Well, as a reporter at Foreign Policy Magazine, I would love to pretend that foreign policy is the most important issue in U.S. presidential elections. Um, it certainly makes the job a lot more interesting. I don't think that's the case. I think domestic policy will always, you know, prevail. Um, But at the same time, we're just starting to see these weird, unprecedented trends across the United States that show China is percolating into domestic politics in new and unprecedented ways, even from the days of the Cold War with the Soviet Union, which was just an entirely different economic system cut off from the US. I mean, you're seeing um, state governors, um, state legislatures, um mayors even um passing legislation to ban chinese state owned entities from buying up companies from buying up farmland bans on tiktok uh the the popular chinese owned uh, social media app on state and local government devices so is this a one off you know one dimensional tough on china push that that some of these you know politicians at the state and local level are pushing for just like a nice bit of uh of PR and also for thinking about security reasons, or does it signify a broader shift in China starting to seep its way into domestic politics? I think it's a wait and see. The long story short is foreign policy is is always sort of an issue at the margins of presidential campaigns. But given how close recent presidential campaigns have been in key swing states, so hinging on a few thousand votes here or there, I think it could play more of an outsized role than you've seen in, in past elections.
1: And speaking of foreign policy percolating in strange ways into domestic races, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, Virginia Governor Glenn Youngkin, and former National Security Advisor John Bolton, all potential presidential candidates, they were all in Asia last week. Christina, give us an inside look at what sources are saying about these visits.
2: Yeah, absolutely. To build off of um, Robbie's point, I think that their trips kind of reflect the growing amount of tension that we're seeing on China um, and also how big of a deal it could be in the upcoming U.S. election and how Taiwan will factor into those debates. Um, Youngkin and Bolton, I believe, were both in Taiwan while DeSantis was in South Korea and Japan. But even then, DeSantis still used his trip to really emphasize and stress the importance of U.S. commitments to Taiwan. I think that their visits and their statements are part of a broader trend. Sources tell me that the level of attention that we're seeing right now for Taiwan is really unprecedented and something that we haven't seen before. Um, and that also tracks with this tendency that we're seeing in Washington, where officials don't want to be seen as soft on China. So I think, you know, as we're you know, in election season or approaching election season, I think taking a clear kind of very strong stance on Taiwan is perceived to be politically useful and something that's very important for your, po- your future political career.
1: Jack, explain to us why Taiwan is so central here.
4: It's the biggest game in town, Amelia. I mean, uh, our friends are more likely to cancel on our plans, and I know Robbie and Christina can probably speak to this, uh, to go to a Taiwan tabletop war game than, than anything else. I mean, this is an acid test of great power competition that you see here, and and the stakes just geographically and politically are, are so high. But when you look at what's been going on with, with Ukraine and Russia's full-scale invasion, Ukraine's a land power, right? It can be resupplied over the border from Poland. Uh, if you lose Taiwan, you're, you're talking about a window of, of three days and potentially where it's gone and nobody's coming to back it up. NATO's not coming, Europe's not coming. And it's sort of this, this game here where the US and China are kind of in a room, the lights go out uh, and, and somebody hits boom. I mean, it's an amphibious assault potentially on the heart of the world semiconductor industry you're talking about China potentially seizing the chips that go into iPhones, smart tablets, everything that we have at our fingertips today. That's running this FP live session, and it's it's coming at a time when the status quo is just buckling under the weight of China's ambition. So you've set up this real systemic clash between uh, the United States, China, and, and Taiwan, in the middle being this country uh, that has emerged for in seven decades from military dictatorship. Uh, to a true and and thriving democracy. And, of course, you've just seen the tempo, too, of U.S. engagement go up with Taiwan, despite the U.S. having this one-China policy. And so when Tsai Ing-wen, the president of Taiwan, shows up at the Reagan Library, it begs the question of American policymakers, uh, are you going to stand up and defend this? And if you're not, uh, what are all the guns and ammo that the Pentagon has good for anyway?
1: I will just mention that Colin Carl, who creates the Pentagon's defense strategy, was on this program in April. And he made the point, uh, similar to what you just said, Robbie, that one of the reasons Taiwan matters so much to the United States in terms of being a national security priority is because it is the leading producer of the most advanced microelectronics in the world. And of course, this does matter enormously to the global economy. Robbie, it's clear that no politician in the United States wants to be seen as being too soft on China for, for this and other reasons. But if being China Hawk is so commonplace in DC and within the US political system these days. What is the worry here? Talk us through that.
3: Yeah, I mean, I think the worry is we uh, we sleepwalk or stumble or trip our way into a new Cold War, even worse, a hot war. Um, you're starting to see pushback on the, on the margins here um, with some of the more isolation bent on the, on the conservative side and, and some of the more progressive Republicans. You know, it was interesting. There was this this Taiwan policy bill that that we reported on that, that um went out out of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee last year. And a few progressives voted against it, even though it got wide bipartisan support. So Christine and I, when we were reporting, reached out to Senator Chris Murphy, a prominent Democratic progressive voice on foreign policy, and you know, asked him why he voted against it. Um, what gives? And and what he told us was that his fear of uh, there's a fear that by acting like a military conflict with China is inevitable you will ultimately make that reality come true is you know US preparation for defending Taiwan here um you know a self fulfilling prophecy for a war murphy's point was china hasn't made the decision to invade taiwan but if the us turns all of china policy just into taiwan policy that could affect their decision making um possibly accelerating the path toward war and i think it's fair to say in the past 20 30 50 years. Um, the blob consensus in Washington foreign policy has made some major mistakes without thinking through what step two or three is. Just look at Vietnam, Iraq, um, the end state and Afghanistan. And so, you know, even if there's a lot of self-reflection on those specific wars, um, maybe there's time to, there's some room for self-reflection on on China before uh uh before things get too hot here. That seems to be the broad point, but at the end of the day th- those voices are sort of on the margins the the con- the broad consensus is uh the tough on china talk is here to stay
1: are you hearing in terms of knock on effects from european sources are you hearing them complain that america is becoming too protectionist
3: yes absolutely i mean i think the the sort of orthodoxy of free trade that that's taken root for the past 50 years the end is nigh for that camp um but at the same time i mean when i talk to american officials they're Uh, Their point is, oh, you want to talk to the Europeans about protectionism like that? That's cute. And so there's a bit of this tussle. I mean, I think we're seeing the uh, most of it over the Inflation Reduction Act, this giant, uh, massive uh, Mm -hmm. bill that that includes a lot of. Um, protectionist agendas and and subsidies on things like electric vehicles um, and other green tech. That's really angered the Europeans. Um, The administration is is focusing a lot on trying to do damage control for that. They're working it out with Europeans. They frame it as some tensions and arguments among friends, but we're going to work it out. Um, But yes, long story short, um, seeing a lot of anger from Europeans about America becoming too protectionist and hearing a lot of Americans say that's a bit hypocritical, but let's work through this.
1: Uh, we just got a great question from a subscriber, Demir. I'm going to ask you this, Christina. What would a softer approach on China entail? And why would Xi Jinping trust the West on getting softer now?
2: Yeah, that's a great question, Demir. I, I think that, um, you know, it's it's honestly, it's it's not clear, you know, whether, you know, what would make them trust them now. I think that what I heard from sources is that, that honestly, from Sullivan's speech and Yellen's speech, you know, that. They thought that that was signaling kind of the same, you know, a consistent Biden approach. But you know, for Chinese officials, you know, they might have been caught by surprise by it. So it's not entirely clear, you know, what would make them trust them. But I'm not sure if maybe Robbie or Jack have have another opinion on that.
3: Yeah, I mean, I think that um, the the problem here with a consensus is that no one who has clout and influence in DC has put forward an alternate plan. Um, and again, this isn't all Washington's fault. I mean, China has taken a really worrying authoritarian bent. But what does a quote unquote soft on China approach look like? Um, I don't think there's anyone that's really thought through that um, sort of red game that or red team that, so to speak, in terms of what a policy looks like. And I think even if they do come up with the best plan in the world, it's just not going to have much cash cachet in, in D.C. at this point. I think the quickest way to to end your career these days and exit stage right is to uh is to say, hey, let's really rethink approach to China and work a lot, a lot more closely with Xi Jinping, you know, and and an authoritarian leader who has who has cracked down uh, in really worrying ways on on free press, on ethnic minorities. I mean, accused of perpetrating a genocide in Xinjiang. There's just not much room for playing nice with China here.
4: Trying like to draw the line too, right? I mean, there's sort of been this trend over the past several decades. I mean, certainly kind of petered out at the end of the Obama administration of U.S. engagement with China, particularly on the economic front. I mean, remember when the U.S. helped China get into that really cool club called the World Trade Organization? Uh, that was sort of a big centerpiece of, of American engagement. And and post-South China Sea, post-U.S. Uh, kind of being frustrated with with China building up those islands, you see sort of a much more securitized, and as we were talking about, a more protectionist approach that that's dominant here in Washington.
1: Let's move to some really great subscriber questions that we've gotten. Um, Christina, this one comes from Adriana. She writes, where do we draw the line between Biden's anticipated presidential campaign rhetoric on the one hand and the effective and tolerable economic decoupling from Beijing without a significant loss of U.S. economic growth and b the alienation of European partners? Great question there.
2: Yeah, that is a great question, Adrian. And I think it's a question that a lot of Biden officials are now wrestling with. They're clearly not trying to alienate, you know, European officials. They're trying to fold them in by emphasizing de-risking, by en- emphasizing diversifying over decoupling. Um, but we are, you know, kind of now in this age where it seems like the economic and national security spheres are increasingly intertwined. And it's not really clear exactly what the economic trade-offs are going to be there, what um, I guess they're willing to sacrifice there in the name of national security. And Also on that, in that being not entirely clear, you know, where the boundaries are in terms of defining what counts as a national security threat. Um, So I think that these are questions that, you know, are, are still kind of being wrestled with currently in the administration.
1: Uh, Two questions here for Jack concerning Taiwan, Um, I'll read them both to you Jack. The first is from Joshua Nuss. Any thoughts or news on how the DOS, DOD and broadly speaking the US Federal Administration view the upcoming January 2024 Taiwanese presidential election? And David Kellogg writes, it's one policy to get tough on Beijing, another to align with President Tsai's DPP and ignore the KMT, which is the other major Taiwanese political party. Speaker McCarthy used her phrase, uh, taking Taiwan without a shot, perhaps not knowing she was referring to the KMT as more than an opposition party. There was. He also writes, there's been almost no reporting of the simultaneous visit by former President Ma to China, KMT's success in building bridges 2008 to 16. Of course, that was a different era. But he, he asks why the apparent naivete by U.S. officials, I guess, also why is the U.S. sort of uncritically aligning with one of Taiwan's political parties here?
4: So I, I think it, it's kind of funny, sort of how how sighing Wen has evolved in, in the U.S. imagination, almost becoming like this this quote unquote meme for for freedom-loving peoples. I mean, there's there's no better way to to show that you stand up for democracy if you're a member of U.S. Congress than to get a selfie with with sighing Wen, pretty much. Or so, Zelensky. Or Zelensky, true, but uh, I mean, sighing Wen's been transiting the United States, of course, recently. Uh, in Los Angeles, New York, uh, and then uh, going through a little bit of Central America, where Taiwan still has relationships. So, I think there's there's this element of nobody knows what's what's going to come next. Really, you've had Tsai Ing-wen kind of buy into this U.S. porcupine strategy, where the U.S. has tried to get Taiwan to spend down on platforms that could actually deter a Chinese invasion. Uh, potentially talking about uh, harpoons, javelin missiles that could either help sink boats. Or help Taiwan if if Chinese forces do indeed land on the island and there's house to house fighting. Uh, so I think people are wondering exactly what what the ramifications for this are going to be if there's potentially a KMT government, which has usually been seen as softer on on China. Uh, and and the Pentagon certainly in the administration have war gamed these scenarios of is there a, a political consensus that that emerges in Taiwan. Is there uh, an aid scenario? Perhaps there's a natural disaster where, where China decides to step in. But but by and large, you've seen the Taiwanese population really consolidate around the DPP views and around what Tsai Ing-wen has, has believed. They're obviously not stepping to the 10-yard line or the one-yard line when it comes to Taiwanese independence. That would certainly be a red line for the Chinese, it would seem like. Uh, but they're certainly sort of trying to thrive and, and flourish uh, in this condition of sovereignty that they currently exist in,
1: Robbie, what are you hearing around Washington about the upcoming Taiwanese election?
3: I mean, I think I think Jack summed it up well. Um, I think I think the most important thing for, for American policymakers here is is a free and fair election. I think there's a lot of concern about um, the possibility of of uh, malign Chinese influence and in, in trying to influence or alter the elections. Um, but but in general, it's it's essentially what uh what jack said
1: two questions for you then robbie um from subscribers um on similar topics amy laws writes: some taiwanese colleagues say u.s talk of preparing for war to protect taiwan from being overtaken by China, is just stirring up trouble. Having just visited Taiwan, they report people they talk to emphasize they don't want war under any circumstances. Can you comment on this? And then Carl Stork writes, China's rise as a world power seems unstoppable. The big question is, will the US be willing to accept that rise and share the management of world affairs with China, or will there necessarily have to be hostile competition because it appears the US preference is for the latter? What are the consequences?
3: Well, I think the first thing to say here is no one wants war. Even the hockeyist of China hawks does, doesn't want war in Taiwan. I mean, I think that Taiwan is in a bit of an uncomfortable position, maybe at risk of being hugged to death by American love here. Um, and and that's just an, an untenable or a, or an uncomfortable position for them, particularly as China chips away at sort of the last formal um, diplomatic ties they have with countries around the world at this point, as most of the world, including the U.S., has adopted the one China policy. On Carl's question about China's rise as, as a world power being unstoppable. Um, I think that's true. I think a lot of people, a lot of politicians here in DC, even if they don't admit it, know the cat is out of the bag there. And this is a new era of geopolitical competition. Um, it appears the u s is is preference is for uh, a hostile competition. Um, some people could argue that. I think the 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 retort from American officials, uh, foreign policy experts on both the left and right is is the us. did start this. the u.s had this policy of engagement of trying to bring China into the fold on this international system um, for decades and look how and look how China turned around and took this um, ultra authoritarian bent in this really worrying way. And so I think their basic comeback is, well, we didn't start it, China did, and we're ready for whatever. Uh, whether that's a helpful retort or not uh, remains to be seen, but I think that's sort of the crux of, of where we are at, at this moment of, of these U.S.-China tensions not really having any foreseeable off-ramp in the future.
1: Well, here at FP, we are also ready for whatever. And unfortunately, we're out of time, but keep keep following us um, on FP and on FP Lives for more on this topic. And thank you to Martin Shapiro, Vicky panosian Louis Friedman, Stephen Moore, Dr. Cheryl Vanden Handel, Dale Leon Ponikovar, and many others for sending in their questions for us. And apologies if I pronounce your name wrong there. We are out of time. Thanks to FP's reporters for joining me today.
0: And that was Amelia Lester in conversation with our reporters Christina Liu, Jack Detch, and Robbie Grammer. Remember, if you want to watch these in video, live, go to foreignpolicy.com. Subscribers can send questions in advance and help frame these discussions. Sign up, use the code FPLive for a discount. You can also see who else we have coming up on the show weeks ahead of time. I am Ravi Agrawal, FP's editor in chief. I'll see you soon.
5: Hi, I'm Annalise Riles, Professor of Law at Northwestern University. I'm also an anthropologist and the host of a new podcast, Everyday Ambassador, where we give you the small tools that make big change. The idea for this show has been a long time in the making. I actually remember the exact day I started thinking about it. It was March 11th, 2011. I was in Japan conducting research on the financial markets of Tokyo. All of a sudden, I heard a loud rumbling sound and the room started shaking. Everything came crashing off the shelves. I looked out the window and I could see the skyscrapers swaying so much that they looked like they would touch. And then the sirens started going off. A tsunami was on the way. These were the harbingers of one of Japan's worst ever disasters, the meltdown of the Fukushima nuclear power plant.
4: The Japanese government now says two reactors are in partial meltdown and four more are at risk.
5: The meltdown completely turned Japan on its head. I saw hundreds of stunned office workers covered in dust, walking down empty train tracks to get from the city to their homes in the suburbs. Electricity was out, internet, cell phones. Supplies flew off the shelves of stores. Geiger counters became an in-demand item, which is never a good thing. Living through a crisis of this magnitude was an inflection point for me. To prevent the next Fukushima or any of the other crises we face today, we'll have to work much more effectively across silos of expertise and national boundaries, and we'll need to harness the wisdom of everyone, from local fishers to nuclear physicists, on how the world really works and what happens when things go awry. Using this approach, I've gone on to spur countless innovations in global policy, and that's what this podcast is all about. Everyday Ambassador peels back the curtains of high-stakes leadership and gives everyone backstage access to the most powerful methods of diplomacy. In each episode, we'll break things down into deceptively simple moves that everyone can make to help build a more peaceful and sustainable world. Like giving a gift.
3: You want to make it tasteful. You want to make it thoughtful. You thought about the other individual. You thought about what their likes and dislikes are.
5: Or creating a fiction. Taking on a fictional
1: scenario and a role outside of the one that you occupy in your day-to-day life
2: allows you to think through what you would like to have done differently
1: or just taking
5: the time to have fun. Trying to see this as more so building long-term relationships that are going to be helpful uh, down the line when negotiations are a bit harder, as all negotiations are. Each week, you'll hear surprising stories which reveal the moves you can make to change the status quo, to find ways to connect and move things forward. So join me and become an Everyday Ambassador, coming to you this spring on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen.